uh, prime minister in 1901 of the Netherlands. Uh, and then next time we'll look at uh, Kuiper as a modern Christian politician, right? We're looking last time at Kuiper the Christian, this time Kuiper as the modern Christian. I remember, I, I told you last time that historians kind of divide history up into ancient, medieval, and modern. Three ways. Three ways of looking at uh, kind of history as, as periods. And one of the things that everybody, that, that makes people modern, that makes you modern, one of the things that makes us modern, and we're, we're still modern like, like Kuiper. Kuiper understood, as many did, that the medieval life was all about the church. The church had control. If you uh, painted art, what kind of art were you going to paint? You were going to paint the Madonna and Child. You were going to paint generally religious themes. You were, if you look at the, the Middle Ages, the architecture was not really the castle. It was the cathedral, the beautiful pieces of art we look at. They're not the castles. They're the cathedrals. They're the Gothic, Romanesque, uh, religious buildings. And so the modern world, and, and again, Kuiper locates this, as many did in, in the French Revolution, at least in part, is a world that is a pluralistic world. By pluralistic or by a pluralism, we mean, of course, a world where there is no one church. There's no one religion where your neighbors are not Christians or they may be Christians of all sorts of different stripes. And Kuiper looks and he says, what does it mean to be a Christian in a pluralistic society? That's your question. That's the question you face every single day. What does it mean to be a Christian in a pluralistic society? Um, now, it, I will say this, in, in, the, in the modern world, in the 19th century, there were many folks who wanted to reestablish a medieval world. It was super popular in those days to look back to Lancelot or King Arthur. That's why King Arthur, by the way, got so big, because everybody started to read about him in the 19th century and make up these myths. Uh, even today, um, it, it's funny for me when I look at uh, so many um, kind of Christian institutions, quite often they have a knight. I went to a, to a school in Louisiana. It was called the it was Episcopalian school, and their mascot was the knight. And it was a medieval knight. It was a medieval figure. No problem with that, of course. But the point is, a lot of folks want to go back to a time where the church, if you're a Christian, you want to go back to a time where it was kind of Christendom, where the church was uh, the main deal. But Kuiper, to his great credit, realized you can't turn back the clock. You can't turn back the clock. Instead, you have to be a Christian who can live in a modern world. So well, that's kind of the opening uh, intro to our time today. Uh, but <clears throat> let, me, let me do a little bit here. We're going to work a little bit here by looking first at Kuiper's second conversion. He didn't call it a conversion. I'm calling it a conversion. But we're going to look here first at Kuiper the pastor. And we're going to spend a little bit of time on this and kind of get him to where he quits uh, being a pastor and goes into politics and uh, then we'll look at his, his view of the modern world. Uh, so we're going to kind of do a little bit of biography and then look at what he does and his critiques of, uh, of modernity. So first things first, uh, if you recall last time, we, we left Kuiper at a small country church in uh, a little Dutch town called Beast. And we left Kuiper as having been converted. He read that, that the best-selling British novel of 1853, The Heir of Redcliffe, and he saw in him, he saw in the main character as himself, this proud, arrogant guy who, uh, you know, uses his beloved as kind of a blank slate to imprint his, his thoughts on. And that's how Kuiper, uh, that's how Bram, Abraham, Bram, had looked at his wife, Joe, his fiancee, Johanna. And uh, he, 
he, he became a Christian in, in part through that. He began to realize, I've sinned against you. I've been arrogant. I've been proud. I, I haven't understood uh, the way of the cross. And uh, so the first couple of years in Beast, his preaching really was a kind of um, warm, evangelical, inspirational message, the kind you might find in plenty of churches around here. Look at the cross. Come to Jesus. Jesus will help you be a better person. You need to be a better person. He will give you that. Um, he focuses a lot on Christ, on who he is. There's much to be said about that, but we need more of that in, in many ways. And yet, Kuiper would, would say later that <clears throat> as inspiring, as fascinating, as captivating as my theology was at that point in time, this kind of evangelical gospel message, he, he said, it seemed too uncertain. It seemed too relative. It pulled me out of my cocoon, but it wasn't solid enough. It pulled me out of my cocoon, he says, but it wasn't, uh, it wasn't solid enough. And, and so <clears throat> what's funny is he has these people at this small country church, and they're really kind of, you know, obstinate people. They're older folks. And those two don't always go together. They don't even often go together. Um, but in this case, they went together. And their obstinacy was not from their age. It was from what they were reading. And he kept preaching them. He kept giving them, you know, a kind of a almost altar call, come to Jesus moment. And they didn't always like that. And he, he, he talked to them and he said, well, what's the deal? What's the problem? And they said, well, you know what? We grew up reading all these Dutch writers from back in the day. And we don't get the sense that you really know anything about them. And this is Kuiper, the smart guy. This is Kuiper, the, you know, the, the academic, the intellectual. He says, well, what do you mean? What Dutch guys? I've read them. They started to name them. John Owen, William Perkins, Richard Baxter. These are all English Puritans, not Dutch at all. But these, these old Dutch folk were reading them in the Dutch translations. They thought they were Dutch. And they had solid, you know, uh, Calvinist theology, deep wells. And Kuiper's like, What? These guys aren't Dutch, but they said, well, why don't you read them? He began to read them. He began to read Owen. He began to read Perkins. But supremely, he began to read Calvin for the second time in his life. The first time he read him when he was in high school, and he, you know, boring, you know, not really cool. But he, he reads Calvin again, and he says, <clears throat> it was Calvin himself, this is what the quote I have in your outline, who first showed me those solid, unwavering lines. So Kuiper undergoes a kind of transformation here what you might call a conversion. Um, he said, with Calvin, the foundations were laid which permitted faith to be constructed in a completely consistent and logical style. And so Kuiper moves uh, from this kind of uh, warm, moderate evangelicalism, which didn't have a lot of, as him, in his mind, substance to fight off the modern worldview. He moves into a full and robust Calvinism. In, in November and December 1865, he, he gave a series of three sermons that were all about the choice. Calvin became very clear, very confident that there was a choice between humanism and Christianity. He gave the series of sermons uh, November, December 1865 over in America, of course, of a war's ending, or already ended by this time, 
Uh, but he says, look, th there's no middle ground here. There's no kind of compromise you can have between these two systems that exalt man or, as he's reading about with Calvin, exalt God. And so his preaching changes. He begins to focus on the reality of suffering as a Christian. He begins to focus on the way Christ confronts evil and Christ confronts death. God becomes more active. God's no longer kind of a set of abstract qualities. And in Easter of 1867, for really the first time, Kuiper emphasizes the resurrection of Christ as a literal event and not just a metaphor. You see, he's, he's changed now. He's changed kind of fully to, um, to not just simply an, an orthodox or evangelical mindset, but, um, as he puts it, a well-ordered worldview. And yet he still has a question, and this is the question that, that begins to, to bedevil him. He looks at these old people in his church who are reading the Puritans, who are reading Calvin, who are in love and, uh, 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 with, with the, the great old theology, and yet he realizes that that's not good enough. That's not actually answer. They're not answering the questions of the modern world. They're still stuck in kind of a medieval mindset. They have the right theology, but they don't have the right worldview. The right, they're not expanding it to the rest of their life. And so Kuiper began to say, what if old-fashioned Calvinism, what if old-fashioned theology, without being diluted, as he puts it, were to advance exegetically, psychologically, and historically to become as current a program as the modern program, as the humanist program? What if we could put together this beautiful old uh, theology with a robust, as he calls it, a world and life view. That was his term he used. Um, and for him, the, the first place that that kind of showed up was in the right to vote. The Netherlands in those days uh, had some suffrage, but not, not universal suffrage. Not universal suffrage for guys either. It was still kind of a land-based or a, actually a money-based uh, system of voting. And so these, these old, generally lower-class Dutch peasants who were really solid theologically, they, didn't, they couldn't vote yet. They also couldn't vote when it came to calling their pastors in the church. The church had a system where the elders didn't have that role either. It was kind of a separate uh, trustees or kind of a, a board of directors almost, very, very kind of you know, company-oriented, business-oriented, because the Dutch were very focused on money and merchants, and very business-focused. And so it wasn't the elders, it wasn't the congregation that voted. It was this kind of board of trustees, which tended to be the people who had the money and the aristocrats, the people who, had the, who were the counts and the dukes and that sort of thing. And Kuiper didn't like this. Kuiper, through his, from this point on, and even probably before, uh, transformed from a kind of elitist, arrogant, aristocratic, we might call him prig, to someone who valued and understood that <clears throat> Calvinism requires, this is one of his crucial points that he begins to develop, Calvinism uh, requires liberty of conscience. Calvinism requires and necessitates a democratic impulse. If God is sovereign and we're all equal, Kuiper would say this, he would say that actually that means that we all, we must have the right to vote as a, as a nation. Now we're going to get into all that next week. Don't, I'm not going to get into the politics as much today. Um, but he, he moves from this, this country church, he moves to a town, a larger city called Utrecht, 
for the top, you know, five in the Netherlands today, a, 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 big, a bigger city. And he moves there because in the 1860s, he writes this pamphlet, this argument uh, that congregations should be able to vote to call their pastors. And he, he gets into the politics of it, and he fights against kind of the big wigs, and he mobilizes people that the churches were going to vote on it. He mobilizes the vote. He gets his first taste of organization. He gets his first taste of politics in the church, uh, in, in the in church. And they win. And they win. And so uh, I have it here in um, 1870. In 1870, he moves, he makes the big move to Amsterdam, the capital. He makes the big move here. He was the first Orthodox minister in 20 years. And how did he get there? Because the people in the church who tend to be more orthodox than the you know, trustees, than the more progressive folks, uh, the more modern you know, aristocrats and people who had money, the people in the church voted him. Because he had worked on establishing that law, that, that new kind of uh, denominational rule, and he, uh, he comes to Amsterdam. He comes to Amsterdam, and I suppose I should mention it here, um, Kuiper then gives a sermon, a very famous sermon, his first debut sermon in Amsterdam, where he identifies the church in two ways. This is Kuiper's view of the church, and we'll discuss this more next week as to what this actually means and how it applies to church politics, all the good stuff. But Kuiper argues that the church is a body and the church is also a plant. The church is a body, and the church is a plant. The church is a body that is uh, rooted as an, or grounded as an institution, and the church is a plant that is organic. This is a body has bones and a structure and a form, so the church has bones and a structure as a form. The church has her formal, you might think of this, make it very easy. Think of this as formal Sundays. And think of this as informal Monday through Saturday. Right? Kuiper argues that the church is both this formal institution, what we call, uh, you might call the gathered church, and what uh, we call today kind of the scattered church, the church uh, uh, organically out in the world. And very significantly, Kuiper argues that the most important part is this right here. He argues that the priority should be given that Sundays are kind of a training ground for you to go out in the world. He makes this point that uh, the human institution of the church is to serve the organic church. Uh, believers engaged in the work of the world witnessing to Christ on weekdays and not just on Sundays. Kind of what Jim and I were talking about right before uh, Sunday school. That the church is not simply meant for Sunday, but it meant for all of life. Um, so that was his opening gambit, that was the opening sermon in Amsterdam. And it signaled that Kuiper, as, as much as he enjoyed being a pastor, wasn't thinking simply about pastoral questions. He was thinking about wider questions. He was thinking about larger questions. The reason why he was thinking about larger questions is that he, he had met a guy the year before named Van Prinsterer. That's one of Kuiper's uh, 
key friendships, only for a few years because Van Prinsterer dies. But uh, Van Prinsterer was the founder, he was a politician, he was uh, the founder of a party that would become Kuiper's party, the ARP, or the Anti-Revolutionary Party. What revolution, of course? Greg, you know what revolution they're talking about. The French Revolution. Yeah, what revolution? I don't mean to put you spot, Greg. I'm, I'm so sorry. You were good last week. You, you, you were so good last week, I thought you, I thought you would know it. Yeah, so the Anti-Revolutionary Party. They're, they're against, they fear the spirit of the French Revolution. They oppose the revolutionary notions of state and religion. Um, for those who cared, they, they identify with Edmund Burke's critique of the revolution, the kind of reactionary approach. They reject any notion of the monarch having absolute power. And they, argue, they argued, Van Prinster argued before Kuiper, that all parts of society need to have a voice. And they need to recognize that God's sovereign, only God's sovereign in human affairs. Now, the ARP before Kuiper was a baby politically. It was very small. It was maybe Van Prinsterer who got elected to Parliament and maybe one or two others. Not that big, very small. Van Prinsterer said, in our isolation is our strength. Kuiper would disagree strongly with him on that. But he said, in our isolation is our strength. And he said, what we need to do to get people is to hold up a clear principle, and then they'll come. Kuiper would change that. But first, he had to become a politician. First, he had become part of the party and part of its leader. <clears throat> Van Prinsterer kind of became a surrogate father. You remember Kuiper's dad? Kuiper's dad was the pastor. He was the kind of uh, evangelical pastor. He was uh, really focused on piety, on love and joy and peace, but not much else. You know, that, that, he, he, uh, Kuiper's father gave him uh, that kind of orthodox theology, but not really uh, any answers to the questions that Kuiper had about anything else. A worldview, a life view. And so Kuiper began to gravitate to his surrogate father, Van Prinsterer. <clears throat> and, and Van Prinsterer said, look, Kuiper, Bram, you're a great speaker. You're very talented. You have a lot of skills. You're a great writer. People are listening to you. People like you. You need to go into politics. And of course, <clears throat> part of the issue is that uh, Kuiper was super successful as a pastor in one sense, right? So they had, the, they had these like... 20 congregations in Amsterdam, they were all, all under kind of one, one big uh, umbrella church. It was almost like a multi-site model that we have today, you know, very common. And so what you could do is, when you had a baby and you wanted them to get baptized, you could sign up for slots with the pastor you liked. So Kuiper comes in, first Orthodox guy there in 20 years, and suddenly he's taken all the baptisms. Like, they had to schedule Kuiper for like four hours in the afternoon because everybody was bringing their babies to him because they didn't want anybody else to baptize him. They wanted Kuiper to baptize him because he actually believed in the baptismal formula. He actually thought about it. They came to his uh, catechism sermons. They came to his preaching. Um, he, he began to be too successful. And so, of course, who did that upset? That upset the people who had the power. That upset the folks who, who were on these kind of non-elder, non-democratic church board of directors, board of trustees. And they began to push back against Kuiper. They began to try to sideline him. He didn't like that. <clears throat> and he said this to his wife. He said, I'm prickly. I'm prickly. As the battle proceeds and people turn bitter against me, might I not become bitter and misanthropic myself? 
He's worried about, look, if I stay as a pastor, I might become too bitter. I, I might not be a good pastor. I might become too, too upset. I might become too prickly. And so in 1873, Kuiper runs. He's already run once. He didn't win, or he decided not to go. But 1873, he runs for a, um, a seat in the lower house. The, the Dutch Congress, if you will, had two houses, lower and upper, sort of similar to ours, similar to, 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 to the British Parliament as well. Um, and he wins. He wins. He, he wins the, uh, the race. But, of course, there's an issue. Everybody that's going to his church is saying, we don't want you to leave. We want you to stay as a pastor. He faces a crisis of conscience. If he goes into the into the political post, uh, he, he would have to become a pastor emeritus. He couldn't be an active pastor, which makes some sense, I suppose. Um, and yet, what really convinced him was a letter from a friend, his closest friend at university, who was a, actually a liberal pastor, but he says this, in your whole ecclesiastical history lies much more the statesman than the churchman. There'll be something forced against your nature if you should decline. And so in 1874, he accepts and he, he, he leaves the pastorate to become a politician. Now, he, he, he will become an elder in, in times to come, in, in years to come, but this marks uh, the last time he'll be an active pastor. He he moves and he becomes a politician in the ARP, the Anti-Revolutionary Party. And he begins to transfer his passions from the pulpit into politics, particularly not just into politics, but into organization, into uh, one, of the, one of the big questions of the day, which I'm sure is not at all relevant to any of us here, education, Christian education. Hyper began to show his skill at organization um, in the year 1880. There's a big debate in the Netherlands at this time over uh, education. <clears throat> Should churches have schools? Should the state have schools? Should we have public school, uh, state-based education? Should we have church-based education? Those are the two options that we're using on the table. Should we, let, should, we let, should we allow the Catholics to have their own parochial schools, even though they're not part of the state Dutch Reformed Church? Should we have the Jews to get their, their or the Muslims to have their madrasas? The, the Netherlands had been a very tolerant, kind of open, free republic, uh, and yet there had always been kind of a state church and uh, state schools. And so Kuiper, in 1880, um, founds BU or the Vrij Universiteit, or the Free University. Free, not because it didn't cost anything, it cost something. But free in terms of free from church and free from state. Free from the state and free from the church. You might think that, well, hold on, I thought we should have church schools here. I thought that was like a really good thing. I, you know, I've been to plenty of PCA churches that have church schools or what have you. Uh, usually preschool or elementary school, but uh, why would Kuiper want a non-church school? Why would Kuiper want a non-church school? So in part, it's liberalism. One of the, one of the, one of the concerns he has, of course, in the, in the uh, national church is that they're mostly moderns. They're either mostly moderns or they're mostly kind of uh, pietist evangelicals who love Jesus but don't really know how to work in the modern world. 
or these old Dutch Calvinists who have the right theology, but also don't know how to work in a modern world. So it probably is liberalism, but, but not just that, Greg. Um, <clears throat> it was also Kuiper's notion that the way to have a modern university that's going to be allow Christians to engage is if it's not a medieval university. He, he actually looked at the Middle Ages, and he said one of the big problems in the Middle Ages was that the Roman Catholics, Rome had their church schools. They had their church universities, and that was bad. That actually, this is one of his big arguments that I suppose we should get to it now. Kuiper's view of the, of the modern world. Um, one of his big arguments is that the modern world is <clears throat> a world that the Christian should not be afraid of entering and being in and living in. The Christian should be equipped to live and to be a modern Christian. And the best way to do that is to have the best education that's not state-sponsored, that's not put by the government, that's not funded uh, by the church, because that's what happened in the Middle Ages. Look what happened there. So it's history of history, really, that sees um, Calvinism as freeing. He, he looks back at the Dutch universities. He looks back at, at the way Calvin uh, works in Geneva, and he says <clears throat> the goal of Calvinism is to liberate education from the state and to liberate it from the, uh, the tentacles, if you will, of the Roman Catholic Church. That, that's the pre so th that's his issue as he sees it. Um, yeah, any questions on that so far? I I'll proceed to a little more discussion about that. Okay, let me give you his view. Uh, I've said Calvinism a lot today, and Kuiper would say Calvinism all the time. I'm going to give you a little brief uh, study in what Kuiper believes about the modern world. What does Kuiper view the modern world as, and what does he view Calvinism as helping Christians to live in that world? So first, <clears throat> when Kuiper talks about Calvinism, his key point is, not, is this. Calvinism... Is not simply is greater than theology. Calvinism is more than simply doctrinal or theological. As he says, uh, the purpose of lectures that he gave was to eradicate the wrong idea that Calvinism represents an exclusively dogmatic and ecclesiastical movement. Instead, he sees Calvinism as a life system. What you might call a worldview. It's Calvinism as a life system or a world view. Now, let me give you one example of this. His view of science. Kuiper argues that Calvinism and Calvinism alone liberates science. It frees science. He says this, Calvinism cannot but foster love for science. He says, don't think I'm weird or strange when I point to the Calvinist dogma of predestination as the strongest motive for the cultivation of science. Now, <clears throat> by science, he does not mean empiricism. He does not simply mean experimentation. Rather, by science, he says this, he says empiricism is transformed into science when you discover in the specifics a universal law. So 
Kuiper is huge. Like many in his day, he's huge into the big picture. He wants big picture laws, not little tiny baby details. He's not, he's not a detail. I mean, he's a good organizer, of course. But just in terms of his view, he has big picture ideas. So he gives uh, four reasons why Calvinism fosters love of science. First, I'll give them to you if you care about it. Like, I, I, this is just one example of um, his argument for the superiority of Calvinism in the modern world. First, he says, because God's providence provides for all creatures and all acts, God's foreordination provides for this, that gives stability and unity to the universe. What you might call regularity. That gives regularity, predictability to the universe. He says, this enables scientific investigation. Without this order, science cannot go beyond mere conjectures. Because God has made the world, God upholds the world. It's not some law, but it's God himself. Therefore, uh, I think this is a very solid, very good argument. Second, he argues that uh, only Calvinism has a heaven-earth balance. That's my term, not his. But he says the problem in the ancient world, remember, ancient, medieval, modern, three periods. He says the problem in the ancient world is that the Greeks looked to the earth, they were blind to heaven. They looked to the earth, they were blind to heaven. He said the medieval folks, the Roman Catholic Church, was blind to the earth, they looked to heaven only. They were all mystical, they didn't look to science. And he says, however, just like Christ is king of heaven and earth, Calvinism restored a proper place for earthly discovery without ignoring heaven. One of, one of Kuiper's big points that he makes over and over again is, uh, I have it here, there's a quote, a Calvinist who sinks God, this is on your handout, does not for a moment think of limiting himself to theology and contemplation leaving the other sciences in the hands of unbelievers, but on the contrary, looks upon it as tasked to know God in all his works. And so his argument is that Calvinism restores the proper place of science. Third, Calvinism has freed science. It's freed science. This is the point I made earlier. It's freed it from the state. It's freed it from the church. It's freed science from both the state and the church, he argued that there had been two powers uh, against free investigation of the world, the government and the church, the pope and the king. In fact, he uses the example of Descartes. Descartes had to flee Catholic France but found safety in the Netherlands, even though uh, one of the great Dutch Calvinist scientist theologians, Fuchs, thought Descartes was, was a, a total idiot and wrong. But Descartes lived in the same town. He was offered freedom to investigate, even though he wouldn't, you know, he wouldn't necessarily have maybe good ideas. Calvinism has freed. It's allowed in a, in a modern world. It's allowed the Jews to study their Jewish version of science. allowed the Muslims to study their science. It's allowed the humans to have their science. But it's also allowed the Christians to have their science. And he says that's the freedom. That's the way we are to live. Uh, fourthly, Calvinism called humans back to the earth. You might call this the creation mandate. I'll just put that down as shorthand. And by that I mean, you may know this, right? <clears throat> that Calvinism calls humans back to multiply and subdue. 
Calvinism calls humans back to the earth and not just to heaven. So those are four reasons that, that Kuiper gives. And uh, he gives famous lectures at Princeton Seminary, 1898. Um, I'd encourage you to read them. They're, they're fascinating. Uh, <clears throat> so any questions on any of that before I give you kind of maybe a brief uh, couple of application points? Yes, sir. Absolutely, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. I absolutely believe there are no absolutely, yeah, yeah, sure, sure. sure. It reminds me of one description of a Sunday school in a country church with the pre-printed lessons. We get together and share our actors. <laughs> sure. <laughs> so nobody sure. actually has studied enough to know what they were talking about. Yeah, yeah, Kuiper would, would say you need to study. Need to study. <laughs> yes, sir. As um, modern Christians and even though and denomination uh, encountering very similar ideological conflicts in the public sphere. Uh, how do we apply this kind of Calvinism when we think about, uh, I think about how evangelicals sometimes arrive in discussions politically, uh, very eager to speak and very hesitant to listen because they've been told uh, knowledge outside the Christian worldview is designed to curtail their faith. Uh, how do we apply this you right now. And that really is the million dollar question, Elijah. Um, I think that may be a good question to return to next Sunday. It's not me copping out, mostly. It is simply that um, we're going to look at Calvin's view of politics and Calvin's view of how Christians are to work in this world. Right now, I'm simply looking at his critique of modernity. Um, but yeah, do remind me if that's okay. And um, yeah. But if you have any specific areas, I suppose I can try to give an answer now. Okay, thanks. So let me give you um, a couple of um, application points, and then uh, we'll see if I have time to go further than this. Um, <clears throat> why is Kuiper valuable? First, he realizes that uh, ideas don't succeed on their own. Kuiper, I think I mentioned this before, melded the idea guy and the organization guy. He had both. A lot of us have one or the other. Kuiper was able to realize, just for example, in the, in the university or in the political party he, he, he uh, basically transformed, he realized the place of institutions, that ideas need institutional support if anything's going to happen. And so building institutions was a key part of Kuiper's vision. He made, um, I'll, I'll give you one, one thing he did that some folks liked, some folks didn't like. He made the ARP, his political party, into an all-encompassing, it was the first national party, political party, in the Netherlands. And he had newspapers. I mentioned a couple here in the timeline, right? He had the Herald, he had the Standard. Um, he, he, he started one, he took over the other. And so basically, um, he had shopkeepers in Amsterdam 
and farmers in Friesland who could get the newspaper, the, the, the standard every day, the Herald on Sundays, who could get the political pamphlets every, every couple of weeks, who could get the sermons that Orthodox ministers would give, and um, they could spend their whole life as a member of the ARP. They could send their kids to, free, to VU, and they could be raised in this kind of cocoon of an uh, entirely Christian reformed Christian life, and never talk to any Muslim, never talk to any Jew, never talk to any Catholic. Now, in one sense, I'm giving you kind of the negative first, but the positive is he creates these institutions. And yet, when he creates a national institution, some of the people back at his old country church in Bees, they loved him, of course, but they didn't like it because the national institution, as we know today, with any corporation, think of Amazon, it destroyed some of the local businesses. There's no longer as much kind of the local political party. There's no, there's, there's, uh, politicians are not as concerned about the local interest. Education not as concerned about the local, you know, farmers out in, out in the country. They're concerned about the big picture. And so Kuiper makes the big picture. He makes a more organized uh, party, an a, 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 a elite university. Today, VU is one of the top 100 in the world. It's a very good university. Worldwide. And so he does all these things that, that, that are great, but there's a loss. There's a loss of the local. Now, I'm, I'm not here to weigh that's good or bad. I'm simply trying to give you a description of it. Um, however, however, um, <clears throat> I suppose we'll, we'll, we'll kind of begin to conclude here. He, he, he also has two key elements of his view of God's grace and the difference between saving grace and common grace. So Kuiper, at, at many points, talks about saving grace and common grace. In fact, if, if you know what common grace is, it's likely you know it in part because of Abraham Kuiper, that term. He, he popularizes this term. Saving grace, of course, this element of regeneration, being born again, that God comes to you and God uh, delivers you from sin and death and devil. And he says, he, he will go so far as to say that unregenerate people don't have a Christian view of providence, that regeneration makes a difference in the way we think. Therefore, he pushes this to a, a, a doctrine that he comes to call the antithesis. Very important term for Kuiper, still used today. He says there's an absolute ethical antithesis between the regenerate and the unregenerate. Now, this would not stop him at all, at all, in the 1890s from cooperating with the Roman Catholics on certain issues. This would not stop him from cooperating with people that he thought were unregenerate at all. He says we can cooperate, but we need to keep in mind the antithesis. On the flip side, on the other side of the coin, he very strongly believed that God, uh, <clears throat> In his restraint of sin, in his providence, in his kindness, he gives common grace to those who are not Christian, to the unregenerate. And he says, look, when people who aren't Christian do something amazing, that's great. Don't let them give glory to human nature, some autonomous human nature, but rather attribute it to God. And so, on the one hand, we have this theology of the antithesis. On the other hand, Kuiper has a view of grace that's given commonly, not savingly, but commonly to all people. 
And if you're going to think through Kuiper's theology and his view, of, his, his view of the world, you have to put both of these together. There's this kind of tension in, in Kuiper's thought between the antithesis and common grace. And the last thing I'll say uh, by, way, by way of closing, and we'll discuss this more next week, uh, he, he gives this, this speech uh, at the kind of opening of Free University in 1880. He gives a speech that he calls, he titles it, uh, Sphere Sovereignty. Now, as a side note, um, he doesn't mention this term very often, but a lot of people do after Kuiper. A lot of people take this term and use it. But in essence, sphere sovereignty is the idea that <clears throat> there are different, well, circles, spheres, that we're a part of. In one sense, it's a simple idea. The church, the state, the family, three key ones. But Kuiper mentions many. He never really goes into a lot of detail. He mentions the arts. He mentions business. He mentions education. Uh, <clears throat> he mentions the university is separate. Um, he mentions uh, all sorts of things. He, he doesn't believe these are sealed off spheres. Um, but he identifies and he says, look, if you want to understand how to be, you need to understand how to be a Christian if, as a churchman, as a family member, and in the state. You need to understand <clears throat> that the only way to prevent the French Revolution, the only way to prevent state-sponsored tyranny, Kuiper was very concerned about the tyranny of the state. You may have, who knows, some similar concerns. Uh, and he says, look, the way to avoid state tyranny is to recognize that God has established institutions in society, each of which is under God alone, and none of which has a right to be over any other, except for the state in a, in a unique way. And we'll get to this next week. He'll argue that there's one unique role the state has uh, only because the fall has occurred. The state is a post-fall uh, sphere or institution. Um, and we'll get into Kuiper's view of politics and the church and Calvinism and all that. I'll leave with this comment, though. Um, <clears throat> Kuiper does not simply talk about Calvinism and science. Kuiper realizes that the, the key issue he has to face is Calvinism and the arts. Because if you, if you think about our church, look around the architecture. It's not, not very, not very uh, you know, uh, it, it's a little sparse. We don't have cool statues, you know. It is what it is. We have a cross here. There's no, there's no crucifix, for example. There's no beautiful medieval Catholic architecture. It, Kuiper will argue that Calvinism uh, creates the freedom for people to produce art. But this is a hard thing. This is a hard thing for him to, to, make, uh, to make as a point. However, he says, this is his argument, that art is meant to be inspiring. When you paint something, it's supposed to lead you to God. Therefore, he has a very didactic view of art. It's meant to lead you to the idea of the majesty of God, the perfection of God. And he says this. I suppose I'll, I'll close here. He looks at the, at the Dutch masters, Rembrandt, Vermeer, and the like. He says, here is their Calvinist impulse. They were not generally all Calvinist, hardly champions of the camp of Dort. But he says this. <clears throat> the, the idea of election by free grace contributes towards interesting art 
in the hidden importance of what's seemingly small and insignificant. His point is simply this, that if you believe in uh, electing grace that's free and given to all, the small, ordinary things that you do become to, start mattering a lot more. They matter a lot more. And you can paint that and show that. So you think of Vermeer's still lives. You think of the, the, the paintings of the ordinary. I think he may be on something there, that the democratic impulse in uh, Calvinism can lead us to identifying what is ordinary and seeing the hidden beauty there. I'll leave you with that, with that thought. Um, <clears throat> Martin, if you wouldn't mind uh, closing us uh, for our class in prayer.